The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear from the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 33. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you had cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we are 11 chapters deep and 10 months into our study of the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And you are joining us kind of just at the right moment. Jesus, according to Mark, is entering into his final week on earth. Okay? So this is interesting. The first 30 years of Jesus' life... Mark has nothing to say, doesn't talk about his birth, nothing before um, his ministry kind of coronation when he's baptized with John. And then he spends two-thirds of the book that we've already studied on the ministry of Jesus, right? Well, now the last third of the book of Mark is just on the last week of his life. And so we're really going to spend the next five months until Easter next year. This study is going to culminate on Easter. We're spending the next five months studying the, the last week of Jesus' life. And so last week we saw that Jesus entered into um, this city called Jerusalem. Now everybody's heard of Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to spend the entirety of his last week in and around Jerusalem. Up until this moment, Jesus has been a traveling itinerant preacher. He's been preaching around from town to town. And he's been doing a lot of miracles. But now Everything else he's going to do from, from now on out is all going to be done in and around Jerusalem. And it's no secret, if you've been around here for a while, that, that, that you know that my favorite book of all time outside of the book of the Bible is, I just see smirks across people's face as soon as I say that, is Lord of the Rings, right? And just for your goodness, I have picked it back up again in the last few weeks and began to read it again. And so you can expect some several references to the Lord of the Rings over the next few months, more than likely. And if you don't know, Lord of the Rings is made up of three books. It is book one, The Fellowship of the Ring, book two, The Two Towers, and book three, The Return of the King. And it's one progressing storyline. It's not like sequels and prequels and all this kind of stuff. It's one progressing storyline that's made up of these three books. It follows this thing called The Hobbit. His name is Frodo Baggins of the Shire. And it progresses from before his possession of this one ring of power to the destruction of the one ring of power in, in the fires of Mount Doom. 
And in one sense, the storyline kind of meanders around in the first book. So many people can't get through the first book because it just kind of wanders around. But then it picks up speed in the second book, and it starts to get pretty interesting. And then it hits a breakneck pace in the third with everything kind of careening downhill towards this place called Mount Doom, right? Jerusalem is Jesus's Mount Doom, right? In the book of Mark, Jesus has kind of been meandering around the Judean hillsides and the Sea of Galilee. He's went in and out of Samaria doing all kinds of works and miracles. But now the pace has picked up uh, quite a bit and we're rushing headlong towards Jerusalem. And Mark wants us to see this by using the word um, immediately. He says Jesus immediately went here. Jesus immediately did this. He uses this word over 40 times. If you're reading it in the Greek, your heart actually begins to like increase. You begin to like get this sense of doom because it's, we're meant to see that the, the, the cart has went over the hill and now it's rushing headlong towards Jerusalem. Okay, this is Jesus's Mount Doom. And here we are. Last week, Jesus had his, quote, triumphal entry, and what I like, and Sam said, and his disappointing exit. Jesus has entered the city that will claim his life. And when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what did he do? He entered in, and he went straight to the temple. Look at verse 11. In chapter 11. You can follow along with me. Open up your Bibles or your apps to Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and what? Went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now what we're going to study today really are arguably the two most controversial things Jesus ever said or did. Jesus' actions lead the religious leaders to by the end of this, say, we want to destroy him. We're going to seek a way to destroy him, right? What Jesus does and says today got him stripped naked and nailed to a cross and crucified for the world to see. Like so many of us, our concepts of Jesus, we can't get into our minds, what did he do that would have caused him to be nailed to a cross? And let me tell you this, if Jesus showed up on the scene today, our reaction, our society's reaction would be the same. We would have him killed. We couldn't stand what he stands for and the way he talks about it. And for some people, some famous people, they've read these stories that we're going to read today of the life of Jesus, and they've dismissed him. They've just dismissed Jesus as impulsive or as vindictive or as obnoxious or as childish. They said no God or son of God would act in such a way. But Jesus is neither of those things, and they don't understand what's actually going on here. And it's really difficult for us to read the story and actually know what's going on. And I'm just going to let you know, it's going to take a lot of work for us to do this, all right? Now, this is not what preachers like to do, what I'm going to have to do for the, next, for, the, for the first half of this sermon, right? I don't like to lecture. I don't like to give a bunch of historical stuff, but it's absolutely necessity for us to understand what's going on today. So we're going to have to do some intellectual heavy lifting this morning, okay? And we're going to have to think, and I'm going to walk you through um, what the temple is, okay? Because in order for us to understand what happens today, we have to have a good working knowledge of the historical significance of the temple, all right? Now, what is a temple? A temple is a place where people go to meet with a God, bottom line. It's a place where people go to meet with a God. In Latin, my son is learning Latin, and I'm getting to learn all these new phrases. It's pretty cool. Uh, in Latin, the word is locus dei. It's the place of God. A temple is the habitation of a God. It's the place of God. Now, this is interesting because in the Christian story, the first temple was the Garden of Eden. It was the original locus dei where God lived in community with man. They would walk together in the cool of the day. Mankind was sinless at this point in time and could According to scripture, he could eat from any tree in the garden except for one. And if you read the story, there's two really important trees in the garden. There's one that's the tree of life, and if they ate from that, they would live forever. 
And the second tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and God said, you can eat of all the trees, including the tree of life, just don't eat from this tree. This was the tree that God said, if you eat from this tree, it will go bad for you. You will die. Don't eat from it. In the garden, everything that mankind needed or wanted was met by God. They had everything they needed or wanted. God was literally everything to them. But then in Genesis 3, mankind screwed that all up. They were deceived into believing that God was not enough for them. And what did they want? They wanted autonomy. They wanted, in the words of the old Invictus poem, to be the masters of their fate and the captains of their soul. So they chose independence and they ate from the one tree that they were not allowed to eat from, right? They didn't want to be dependent upon God. They wanted to seek independence from him and so they rebelled from him. And God, because he's holy, he always does what is good, right, and perfect. And he, because he always does what's good, right, and perfect, he can't even be in the presence of evil, of wickedness, of rebellion. And so what God does is he... No work of rebellion is, ever goes unpunished. God has to respond to this rebellion. And one of the consequences of this rebellion was that mankind lost the temple. Mankind lost the locust day. They lost Eden, the place where mankind and God could dwell together. They lost it. Just listen to what Genesis 3.24 says. God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's an angelic being, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, Jesus, or God, literally institutes like a laser security system at at the gates of Eden, right? And you could not get through it. It's a flaming sword. Now, what's it? So, so let me just say, This is why we long for things and we're never satisfied, okay? This is why you want community, but community is never enough. This is why you want friendship, but friendship is never enough, right? You can throw great parties and it's a great time, but everybody has to go home eventually and you got to go back to work and life goes, goes back to normal. This is why you love, right, Uh, sex, but sex is never enough. This is why you love money, but money is never enough. This is why you love food, but food is never enough. This is why you love wine, and wine is never enough. We have this memory trace. Think about this. You've seen all these movies. They have this life, then their memory gets wiped, and then they're living their new life, and all of a sudden, they have these flashbacks, right? They have these memory traces of their old life. That's what it's like to be born human. You have a memory trace in your DNA of life in Eden, of the temple, of what it meant to dwell in the locust day with God. And so now we have this memory trace. We want to meet God. We want to find God. We want God to be everything to us once again. But because of sin and separation and the flaming sword, we can never get back into relationship with him. We always, we can get a little peace, but we can never be satisfied. And so what God does to rectify this situation. Here's a problem. Between us and God, there's a flaming sword, right? You should tell your kids about this flaming sword, okay? There's a reason we love Star Wars, right? Our kids love Star Wars. This is it right here, right? Think of it. There's lightsabers blocking you from Jesus, okay? There's a problem there. There's a problem. Mankind has been expelled from the presence of God. This means that the ache we have for God, this ache or memory trace of the eternal, it can never really be met. We want to know God. We crave to be loved and known and accepted completely by our creator. But literally, there's a flaming sword, or maybe figuratively, there's a flaming sword in our way. Now, many years later, to rectify this problem, God came to his people and he chose specific people out of all the world. They could not come to him, 
but he came to them and he gave them this thing called the tabernacle and which later would be called the temple. And there's several different temples. And this tabernacle and this temple, the tabernacle was basically a mobile temple that would go around that was literally the the new locust day. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to meet with my people. I want, to, I want a relationship with my people, but there's a sword in the way, so I'm going to give you this tabernacle, and in the midst of this tabernacle, I will come and meet with you there. Now, there's a flaming sword problem, right? So what happened in this mobile temple, this tabernacle? Well, literally, an animal would have to go under the sword. Right? If you go through the flaming sword, what's going to happen? You're going to die. So what happened? Something had to die. You had to deal with the sword problem. So in the tabernacle, animals were sacrificed. All kind of animals were sacrificed. For a person to meet with God, something would have to go through the sword, and that something was an animal, usually a lamb, sometimes a pigeon. Blood was shed, and this gave people limited access to the presence of God very limited access. Um, in the tabernacle at Yom, Yom Kippur, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year, and he'd have to make sacrifices for his own sin, then he'd come in and make sacrifices for the people. Very limited presence. Who could get in to the, who could get into the locust day? The high priest one day a year, only after making sacrifice, right? So if you read the Old Testament, you will find that there's a lot of significance around the tabernacle and the temple. It was where mankind dealt with the sword of separation between them and God. So here in our text, when Jesus enters the temple, he's entering into a very sacred place. This is the locust day. This is the place where God meets with man. The only place on the face of the planet where the holy God, the Hebrew God, the Yahweh, meets with people, meets with sinful humanity. And in Jesus' day, what we see right here is Jesus is entering into the third temple, okay? Now, let me just give you a really quick background. The first temple replaced the tabernacle. It was built by Solomon, right? Remember, David wanted to build it, couldn't build it because he killed too many people in war. So Solomon gets to build it. Solomon builds the first temple. And then that temple was destroyed because of Israel's rebellion. Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. And the place of God, literally the locust day, was gone. No more place to meet with God on the whole planet. It was gone. Years later, Zerubbabel rebuilt. You have to say that word real fast, like you're confident, like you know how to say it. He rebuilt the temple, and it lasted until 37 B.C. And then in 37 B.C., Herod the Great decided, this little temple's not good enough. I want a temple that reflects my glory and my grandeur. And so Herod the Great, listen to this, literally took apart the temple, stone by stone, and then rebuilt it in a more grandiose way. So the temple that Jesus walks into here is the third temple. It's Herod's temple. And Herod began the construction of this temple in 20 B.C., right? 20 years before Jesus, the temple began to be rebuilt. And construction now is still underway when Jesus enters the scene here. This temple would not be completed until AD 66. So roughly 90 years it took to rebuild this temple that we're we're going to see. I'm going to show us a picture of it. That's how enormous it was. It took 90 years to complete it. Now, Let me show you a a picture of Herod's temple. Let's go ahead and put that up on the slide here. I'm going to work us through this in a a minute. This is the temple that Herod built. All right, we're going to talk about some of the pieces of this because obviously you can't, actually, hopefully, you you can't really get an economy of scale here, but these little dots, those little dots are people, okay? So let me, and I'm going to walk you through it in a second, but let me uh, just jump into our story a little bit. Um, When Jesus walks into the temple, okay, he's actually walking in right here, okay, he's walking in right here, and he's going to look around, okay, he's not going to go all the way up into here, this is where, if you've ever heard of the Holy of Holies, and this is where all that stuff is, and they're doing sacrifices and stuff in here, Jesus walks into this area, okay, that's where he walks into, 
<clears throat> and he looks around. And then we saw last week, it's kind of anticlimactic. He looks around, checks it out, and he goes and camps out with his disciples two miles away to Bethany, right? Bethany is just outside the city, two miles, and that's where Jesus camps out. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 12. So you can follow along with me. And you can just, uh, I guess we can go back and forth. While I'm reading, you can put the scripture up, and then we'll go back to the temple. Verse 12. On the following day, so Jesus camps out. On the following day, when they, the disciples and Jesus, came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus is a man. He gets hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right, the disciples are heading back into the city of Jerusalem, right? And Jesus is hungry. Now, this does not look very good on Jesus' resume, right? Jesus goes to the convenience store. It doesn't have what he wants, so he curses it. They're out of Little Debbie's. Boom, curse. It looks like Jesus got hangry. And he threw a little temper tantrum, and everybody saw it. But for us to really know what's going on here, we've got to, again, we've got to do some historical research, okay? And this is what, here's a couple things that we've got to know. In Jesus' well, with a fig tree, okay? With a fig tree. Here's what happens. A fig tree, it loses all its leaves, leaves in the, or you harvest the fruit, right? All the leaves come off in the fall, just like we know it. And then in the springtime, which is the time of Jesus, where Jesus is approaching this tree, two things happen. Leaves pop out, and then these little pods begin to pop out as well. The Hebrew word for these pods, I'm going to have to get it, is pagim. Okay, it's pagan, these little bitty pods. It's not time for figs yet, but it's time for these pods. And what travelers love to do is they saw a tree and leaf, and they'd go up, and they'd pull these pagum off, and they would pop these pagums in their mouth, and they'd eat them. It's just a nourishment for them while they're traveling. It's, a, it's kind of a famous food for travelers. And so Jesus sees this tree that has leaves and therefore should have pagum. It shouldn't have figs. The figs have fell off in the fall, but it should have pagum. And it doesn't have any. And Jesus gets a little angry at what goes on, right? This tree should have been fruitful, but it wasn't. It should have provided them something to eat, breakfast, right? But it didn't. This tree was created to provide fruit and food and sustenance for people. When, it, when, it's leaf, when there's leaf on the outside, it should have some nourishment there, but there was none to be found. So Jesus cursed it. And the second, so we need to know that to understand the story. And the second thing we need to know is that what Jesus is doing here is an enacted parable. He loved to teach in stories, but he also loved to perform kind of stories. Right? When Jesus is on the water and the waves come up, that's, it happened, but it's also an enacted parable. He's trying to teach people about his authority and his power. When, the, when he curses this fig tree, it's an enacted parable about the temple and ultimately fruitless religion. Jesus comes up to this tree that has all the signs of fruitfulness on the outside. It's green. It has leaves. It's a time and a season for that. But upon intimate inspection, it's fruitless. It's rotten. Something's wrong with it. And Mark doesn't want us to miss this. So he puts it together for us in this nice little temple sandwich. Okay? If you read, why did we read this whole section together? Because Jesus goes, temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree, temple. All right? We need to read it in a big chunk because the fig tree is about the temple. Right? The, the fig tree, in a sense, is the temple. And the temple, in a sense, is the fig tree. Jesus finds a tree with all the signs of life, and yet it was unfruitful, and so he curses it. And Jesus 
walks into the temple, this sacred space, the locust day, the only place the God of the Hebrews meets with people, and Jesus curses it. This is what gets him killed. Let's read verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, It is not written, or it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now let's show that temple picture again. What Jesus is entering is called the court of the Gentiles. It's this section right here. It's called the court of the Gentiles. It's, listen, here's the, here's the, the space. It's 300 by 500 yards. This section here is a cumulative to 35 acres. Okay? Roughly four and a half football fields right here. So when Jesus enters this place, this place is, is bananas. Okay? Thousands of people, hundreds of little kind of shacks. Think a busy, crowded farmer's market. That's what the court of the Gentiles is. And this is the only place non-Jews could go. Non-Jews, you see how these walls are set up here? Non-Jews could not go anywhere inside this place. It gets holier the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, to the sacred space in here. So only, so Gentiles could only be here, and actually women couldn't go, women could only go here. Women couldn't go any farther than this. So there's very segregated and separated worship experience, right? And Jesus enters into it, and there's thousands of people, and there's hundreds of tables, and there's a lot of, you know, a big market that's going on right now. So much so, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, when he says in AD 66, when they finished the construction of Herod's temple, that middle section, when they finished the construction, listen to this. At Passover, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed in one day. 255,600 lambs. This is not a Christian. This is a Jewish historian. That's how many thousands of lambs were sacrificed in here. So all of those lambs, and then if you were poor, you had, to, you had to buy pigeons. You couldn't afford a lamb. All of that is happening right here. Think about, think of it just, first off, how loud and obnoxious that would to have that many animals, right? And smelly. And all of those, and then they literally, literally have, so they have like troughs that go out of the city here for the blood to flow out of it. Think of how nasty it would be to sacrifice that many animals. Over 250,000 lambs in one day. That's a lot of money changing hands. See, this outer court area for the Gentiles had become a Walmart, had become a farmer's market. Who can sell the most lambs? Who can lower the dollar? Who can sell them the cheapest? Who can make the most profit? And all of this, so you walk in and you're hearing animals and you're hearing bargaining and you're hearing all kind of people and there's just a lot of commotion going on, a lot of money changing hands. And Jesus walks in and he he finds some little section and he starts flipping tables. Now, when I thought Jesus flipping tables, I thought you're in a room this size and you're flipping tables and everybody sees it. But that's not how it happens. If everybody saw it, Jesus would be probably crucified earlier. He's over in a little corner somewhere flipping a few tables and stopping people from selling, and he's stopping them from the commerce that's going on in the locust day, the place where God and man is supposed to meet. Jesus walks into the temple, and what does he see? The place of God the place where people go to meet with God, the people that have longings. Think about this, guys. You have all these eternal longings and you have this memory trace. You want to be connected to God and you step into that place and all you get is more commerce. All you get is more of what the world has to offer. 
For a little bit of money, you can trade hands and this priest can go into the Holy of Holies and he can forgive your sins. and It'll be great. And that's the greatest experience you have of God. Jesus walks in, into the temple, the place that's meant to be fruitful. And he sees a fruitless, man-centered monopoly. He sees another opportunity that men grasp at to make money. The place of God had been corrupted by commercialism. The place of God has become another place where mankind seeks to make a profit. And the heading of this section, you guys have all heard this before, or many of you, and it's called Jesus Cleanses the Temple. That, that, tent, that, that heading is all wrong. Jesus is not cleansing here. Jesus is cursing. There's a big difference. Jesus isn't cleaning the temple. temple. Jesus is fig-treeing it. Jesus is cursing it. Jesus is giving his condemnation and curse upon it. He has inspected the temple and he has found it fruitless. And so he flips over tables and he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. Hear that. For all the nations. Only, you know, only the Jews could get in here. Only male Jews could get in here. And Jesus said, he flips the tables and he opens the doors. And the Jews expected the Son of God or or the Messiah to come and to cleanse the temple from Gentiles. Jesus does the opposite. He opens the temple to Gentiles. He says, my place should be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus looks at the temple and he says, just like the fig tree, you have all the signs of life. Man, can you imagine what it would look like? This temple was beautiful. One of the most beautiful structures on the face of the planet at the time. Jesus says, you're beautiful on the outside. You are busy. Thousands of people are rushing through your doors. A lot of money is changing hands. The place is packed, and it's a center of religious activity. They're making bank. Everything that we would judge success by, a lot of people, beauty, a lot of money. And Jesus looks at it and says, fruitless. He curses it. And it's really interesting. Because most of the time, when Jesus sees something fruitless, when Jesus sees something that is broken and needs to be healed or restored, he does just that. He heals it. He brings restoration. He sees the blind and he gives them sight. People are hungry and he multiplies food. See, Jesus very easily could have went, oh, this fig tree, poor fig tree. doesn't have any pagum. Pagum. And he could have just packed it with pagum. Right? He could have restored the fig tree. Isn't that what Jesus does? Doesn't, just, doesn't Jesus restore the broken? Doesn't Jesus rest, restore the things that the curse has affected? But that's not what Jesus does with a fig tree. With a fig tree, Jesus curses it. And he curses it down to its root. This is one area that Jesus decides not to renew and to restore. Instead, he curses it. Now, what's he doing? So I'm going to lay the foundation here for a lot of work that's going to take place in the next five months because we're going to see the temple a lot. Jesus here is literally laying an axe at the root of the temple and the sacrificial system. The sa- listen, the system that kept Gentiles, that's most of us unless you're Jewish here, Gentiles and women reg- relegated to the outer courts. If you are not Jewish, somebody else met with God on your behalf. If you're not Jewish, you could never get into the locust day. You could never get into the presence of God. It was barred from you. Jew- if you're not Jewish, or you're a woman. You could never get in there. And what Jesus is doing is putting an axe at the root of this whole system. 
He's cursing the temple, and he's literally going to be opening up the locust day. He's opening up the temple for Gentiles and women and anyone to enter into the presence and the place of God. No longer will anyone have to come to the temple to sacrifice animals to have their sins forgiven and to meet with God. Now, I would say millions of dollars went on, changed hands in that temple. And anybody who's in charge of that type of money is not going to be happy about a guy coming in and flipping over tables and changing the way people meet with God, even if he is the son of God. And so when he does it, there's a price on his head. They're going to kill him for this. But, wait a minute. Jesus is going to open up the locust day. What about the sword? How Can Jesus just walk in and say, it's open now. Let's tear down these walls. Ladies, you can come on in too. Gentiles, you can come on in too. Everybody, come on into the locust day now. There was a sword, right? There's a sword outside of Eden that prevented mankind from going inside. The only people that could get into the Holy of Holies, let's open that, put that back up there real quick. The only people that could go up into the Holy of Holies, so priests could make their way here, and they, some of them could make their way into an inner court here, but there's a holy of holies inside that has a, a huge curtain that hangs down. And it was a very thick curtain. And that curtain literally prevented everyone. It was the, God was in there, and the curtain separated everyone else, and only the high priest on Yom Kippur could go behind this curtain and make a sacrifice for people. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to open that up. That, that, that secret spot back there, I'm opening it up to everybody, but what's he going to do about the sword? The only way the high priest got back there is if he sacrificed animals for himself and sacrificed animals for the people. How can Jesus just open up the presence of God and make access to God possible without dealing with the sword? Well, he can't. What we're going to see over the next few chapters is that Jesus opens up Eden. He opens up the locust day. He opens up the temple and gives access to God and he gives forgiveness of sins and he makes it possible for us only by going through the sword for us. See, Jesus takes the sword for us. That's what's going on on the cross. Jesus is taking the sword of separation. He's becoming the sacrificial lamb in our place that takes away all our sin once and for all. If you want to read it, go read the book of Hebrews. Blows your mind. Jesus is the high priest that goes into the presence of God and opens up the temple for us. But how does he get in there? He's not just the high priest, he's also the ultimate sacrificial lamb, and he goes in at the cost of his own blood. He goes in under the sword for us. See, in Herod's temple, priests had to make sacrifices every single day for their own sins and the sins of the people. But on the cross, Jesus made the final sacrifice that ended the temple business. Jesus' sacrifice of himself was the final sacrifice that changed how people relate to God forever. How do we know that? One interesting fact that we're going to see later as we study this. That huge temple or that huge curtain I told you about, that huge veil I told you, told you about was really thick. On the day Jesus Christ was crucified... There was an earthquake in the temple and that curtain gets torn from top to bottom. Top to bottom. Why? Because God himself is tearing it apart. The curtain of separation between God and mankind that kept mankind out of Eden, the sword of separation, Jesus takes it himself and he rips it asunder. Signifying what? We have new access. Eden is open. The presence of God is available. Forgiveness is offered free for all because of Christ. Jesus took the sword of separation 
so that we could be brought into the presence of God. Jesus was crucified so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Ladies, Gentiles, Jews, on the basis of one sacrifice, one eternal sacrifice. Jesus sees a fig tree, reminds him of the temple, and he curses it. And we're going to, this isn't the last thing he says about the temple. He's going to get more trouble about the temple. He's going to promise that one stone that you see in this beautiful temple will remain on top of each other. And I told you, Herod finished his temple AD 66. Yeah. And then it was destroyed in AD 70. Four years of, gl- of glory and grandeur. But it was really, the axe was laid at the root of it right here with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is saying, there is nothing. Okay, first off, there's a lot that stands between you and God. There's your own sin. There's a flaming sword. <laughs> there's God's holiness, which is similar to saying there's a lot that stands between you and the sun, right? You want a relationship with the sun? You get close to it, lights out, right? Similar with God. We aren't made in a way anymore because of sin. We can't be in the presence of God. There's a lot that stands between us and God. And every other religion on the planet says this. Here's some steps to get near God. Here's a holy place. There's big walls around this holy place. Say your prayers, right? Do a sacrifice, give some money. Then eventually you'll be clean enough to enter into the Holy of Holies. In Christianity, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left to do. It's interesting here. That when Jesus, you know, he finishes this little section by talking about faith. He says, have faith in God. He talks about prayer. Talks about forgiveness. All three of those things are things that should have been easily found in the temple. But they weren't. They're fruitless. It was fruitless. The temple is barren and dried up at its roots, and so God, Jesus himself curses it. And this is interesting. I, I think it's interesting. We're going to hear a lot about it in the future. Jesus is the high priest that enters in. Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed. And Jesus is himself the temple. He is the new locust day. No one meets with God without going through Jesus. No one. Is that exclusive? Yes, it is. It's absolutely exclusive. But if you're God, you can be exclusive. You can say there's only one way. Jesus himself said over and over, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father unless he's going through me. This, there was one spot on earth where people met with God. There's still one spot on earth that people meet with God, and that's the person of Jesus Christ himself. He is the new temple, and yet he's open for all. If you want to know God, you've got to go through Jesus. You've got to know Jesus. Now, if you read the Old Testament, and many of us might, maybe we took an Old Testament class in college or something, we might have some working knowledge, or even worse, we've been on Reddit or something, and we've learned about, you know, what the Bible teaches, right? And what the Bible teaches on the internet is not really what the Bible teaches, okay? And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you get this sense that God is this angry God, and that the God of the Old Testament is just, just like all the other gods, right? Christianity is just like all the other religions. All religions are the same. There are priests, there are temples, and there are things to do to make yourself suitable to the gods. You might be able to go to the Old Testament and come out with that. But here's the the deal. That's half the story. Okay? That's half of the story. Look to Jesus here. Jesus isn't giving us a new religion. 
Jesus is putting an axe to the root of all religion. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our new temple. He is the locust day. Jesus is our final sacrifice. Jesus is putting an end to all that religion, and he's, he is once again everything for us. He has done everything. All the rules of the Old Testament, Jesus obeyed them perfectly. The Ten Commandments, all the rules, Jesus did it perfectly because we failed to do it. The flaming sword that separates us from God, Jesus didn't have to, but he willingly took it for us. He's our obedience. He paid the price for our disobedience. Jesus has done everything for us, and now listen, so what's left? What's left for us? What's left for us is to repent and to follow him. It's that simple. And repent doesn't mean pray a prayer or say you're sorry in your heart. Repent means I'm going this direction and I'm changing and I'm going to follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. We're not. That's why he offered one perfect sacrifice for all time because all of our screw-ups in the future are already under the blood of Jesus. They've already been forgiven by God. But we repent and we turn and we follow Jesus. This is it, man. I'm closing. I'm early today. If you don't know I'm early, you don't come here very often. (laughs) Think about this. It's pretty simple. We could get into a lot of stuff, but it's pretty simple. The fig tree had all the signs of life. Can I make a really personal example right now? The fig tree looked really good on the outside. The fig tree had a lot of Facebook friends. The fig tree got a lot of likes on everything they put on Facebook. The fig tree had a lot of money. See, the fig tree looked good on the outside. Everybody would say they got it going on. Jesus looked deep into the heart. Jesus looked, he inspected the fruit. It wasn't there. And he cursed it. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We look for outward fruit. God looks to the heart. But what's so interesting is God is so upside down, right side up, whatever you want to say it. Jesus, right? How does he get in? He takes the sword for us. What is that? Jesus hanging on a cross. Jesus hanging on a tree. And he's fruitless. Jesus hanging on. You inspect the cross. There's a dead man hanging on it. What says failure more than naked and dead on the cross with your enemies poking fun at you and laughing at you and throwing dice for your clothes? When you look at the tree, right? You look at the tree with Jesus on it, it looks fruitless. But this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. There was never a more fruitful act in the history of the universe. From the cross comes the resurrection. He get, he's the seed that goes in the ground and pops up. He's the seed that dies and lives again. If you believe in Christ, it, your life might look fruitless sometimes. You might not prosper in the ways of the world. People might not look at you and go, wow, they've really got it going on. But they don't see, see? They don't see the resurrection. They don't see the fruit that's coming of the resurrection. And what happens in the resurrection? Why do we pop up and get a new life? We go through the sword. And on the other side of the sword is eternity with God. And we're new and we're holy now and we don't have sin anymore and we can enjoy the locust day. We get to walk in the cool of the garden with God again. All because Jesus went through the sword for us. Listen, and this could be yours, but it doesn't come to you by trying harder It doesn't come to you by being better. It doesn't come to you by offering more sacrifices. It doesn't come to you by reading your Bible more or praying more or being a nicer spouse or being a better American or voting a certain way. 
The locust day only comes to you by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and following him. He's the only one that gets through the sword because he took, his, he took it. He died and he was resurrected. And that's what we do when we come every week. Every single week we come and we take of the Lord's Supper, we take of this sacrament because we're reminded, this is why I have access. This is why my prayers are heard. This is why I know I'm forgiven. The curtain was torn. Christ died and was resurrected. My sins aren't on me anymore. My sins were put on Christ and were, fi- were finished right there. And now he remembers my sin no more. Far as the east is from the west, that's how far he throws our sin from us. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And if you've never embraced him by faith, I'm not, give, I'm not offering you a religion. I'm offering you eternity with Christ. I'm offering you the locust day, the place of God again. A whole new relationship, a whole new way of living. Jesus says it's so crazy, you have to be born again to enter it. That's what happens. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you. I, we did a lot today. We talked about a lot. We went in a lot of places. Your, your book, your gospel, I'm reminded again, it's like the ocean. A child can step into the, you know, on the shore and splash around in the water and it's fun and it's brilliant, it's great. But it's also, if you swim out, it's also so deep and so complex and so beautiful and so dangerous. And your gospel is so much like that. It's simple and yet profound and brilliant. There is no temple but Jesus. There is no sacrifice but Jesus. And that's what we remember this morning. Jesus, our King, who took the sword for us. And we have great hope, hope in the resurrection, hope in the future coming of this Christ, this King, who will make the world, Eden, He'll bring Eden to us. This world will be remade into the locust day and we'll walk again on this planet renewed and redeemed in the presence of of God. And, And all of our hearts' longings will be met, will be satisfied. Jesus, for those who have not put their faith in you this morning, would you give them that faith to believe? Would you enable them to repent and turn from their sin? And for those of us who, uh, we're here as a renewal. We're here renewing our covenant with you. We're, we're here to be reminded that we've walked away this week and we need to be brought back in. Would you do so for your own glory? As we take the Lord's Supper, we hold in our hand the body of Christ and we take into ourselves the blood of Christ. We'll be reminded of the great price that you paid. Sin is so serious that you had to die And yet we are so loved, Jesus, that you willingly did it for us. No other stories like this. No other religion has this. This is your story, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.